we can support language development, whether typically developing child or child with autism, by making sure that we're using language in a range of ways. So using lots of different words, using those words in different ways, using those words across different situations and contexts. How do children with autism spectrum disorder develop language skills? Recent research shows signs that third-party conversations may be a possible avenue for children with ASD to learn language. If correct, this hypothesis may reveal insights into new ways of teaching children important early language skills. This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. In this episode, we'll talk with Dr. Rhiannon Leister about her research into how children with autism may benefit from a language-rich environment. Dr. Rhiannon Leister of Emerson College, Communication Sciences and Disorders, welcome to Campus on the Common. Thank you so much for having me. I understand that you've won a grant and it's relevant to autism. How did you first get interested in autism? It was sort of by accident, starting in, you know, maybe my freshman or sophomore um, year of college, I knew I was interested in psychology. So I decided I would work at a camp with kids, right, which is sort of what you do if you're interested in, in children and child development and, and psychology. So I started working at a camp in upstate New York for children who had sort of a range of different kinds of difficulties. And it was a lot of kids with behavioral issues for the most part. So I signed up for a, you know, I don't remember, it was like a nine or 12 week gig. And I was placed in my group of campers and I had a couple of co-counselors. And we had three other groups of campers and, and counselors that we worked with closely. So throughout the 12 week session, it's sort of hazy. I think we probably each had six campers in our camp session. And throughout the summer, there were a few children with autism who joined us for you know two or three week sessions and i didn't know anything about autism at the time but there was something that i really enjoyed about those three campers and i think what really grabbed grabbed my interest and also sort of grabbed my heart was that i think partly i didn't know that much about autism but partly what i learned through them I found really, really interesting because they really captured the spectrum of autism in a, in a really amazing way. So we had one camper, and I, I'll use pseudonyms, obviously. We had one camper, Nicholas, who was about 14, and he was incredibly smart and incredibly social. He was bilingual. He was just really energetic and and really fun. And then Matthias was about the same age and he had some language. He could speak in very, very short and simple sentences, but he had these incredible skills that I didn't expect from him. So Matthias had a lot of anxiety and so he had a hard time sleeping. And he would, he sometimes would keep the other kids in the bunk awake. And so we would bring him into the counselor's room and he really enjoyed doing puzzles. So we would set up a puzzle for him. But the amazing thing about Matthias is that, you know, when you do a puzzle, there's like the cardboard side and then the picture side. He would turn it so that the picture side was down so that he could see the cardboard side. And he would sit on the couch and sort of ponder and, and look at the pieces and then sit up and put a piece in, like without rotating it, without trying it, would put a piece into the puzzle. I mean, it was amazing. And then the third 
boy with autism that I met that summer was a boy named Zane. He didn't have any spoken language, and he also didn't have any sort of a communication device. Um, and despite that, he had an incredibly positive attitude. He was really easy to get along with. He was also very interested in being around other people, being close to other people. I was just really sort of grabbed by these three kids and and their range in skills, right? We had Zane who didn't speak at all, and we had Nicholas who was bilingual. And then these amazing skills that they had that you might not expect based on an impression that you would get sort of on the first time that you met them. So that was sort of my origin story in the world of autism. And I I went back to college, I was in college at the time, and sort of went to my professors and said, like, I, I know what I want to learn more about, you know, this is, this is something that really speaks to me. And, uh, and I still feel that way. You recently won a major grant from the National Institute of Health to work on issues related to autism. I was hoping you could explain what the grant is for, the area of study, and what you're looking to accomplish once the study is completed. So the general area of interest for this project is focusing on language development in children with autism. And also let me add a note on terminology. So I have been trained in, in my graduate program and in my experience as a professional to use what's called person first language, which means we refer to people with autism or children with autism. But there's a lot of disagreement in the world of autism and, and different perspectives on the ways that we should use language to talk about autism. People with autism often prefer to say that they are an autistic person. And so I just want to mention that here on the podcast, just to highlight that, that there are differences in opinion in how we talk about autism and how we talk about people with autism. And I sort of have a habit of using person-first language, but I do want to recognize that individuals with autism themselves may prefer to be called autistic individuals or autistic children, autistic adolescents, um, an autistic person. That, that's super helpful. And through this recording, if I make a mistake, please correct me because I don't know what I don't know until I know. And this is how one gets to know. Thank you for the clarification. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think if we had somebody who had autism here with us, you know, what I would do is I would ask them, what do you prefer? Do you prefer that I refer to you as an autistic individual or a person with autism? And we don't have that opportunity to sort of ask about personal preferences here, but I just did want to mention that for the audience. So the grant is about language and autism. And the really interesting thing about language and autism is that when you look at the diagnostic criteria for autism, which are, which are outlined in a very hefty manual of diagnoses, there's basically two symptom areas that define autism. So autism or autism spectrum disorder as it's now formally called is characterized by impairments in social interaction. So that means difficulties in the back and forth of social relationships, difficulties in building and developing and maintaining relationships, difficulties in the communicative strategies that we use to regulate social interactions, right? Things like um, eye contact or facial expressions or gesture use. So there's that sort of cluster of symptoms, which is really about social reciprocity and social engagement. And then there's the presence of repetitive behaviors. That could be a a really strong interest in a certain kind of object or a certain topic, or it could be routinized uh, motor mannerisms or sensory interests. So those are the two domains that define autism spectrum disorder. There's really nothing in there about language. And yet, somewhere around 
50% of individuals with autism have some kind of a language impairment. That, that number is very mushy, right? It depends on the particular study that you look at. And something like 25%-ish of individuals with autism spectrum disorder will remain minimally verbal even into adulthood, meaning they don't have that much spoken language. So there's this tension for me and for many other people in the field about why that is, right? So there's no requirement for a language impairment in the diagnostic criteria, and yet language impairment is very, very common in autism. So why is that? What's happening there? How can that be? So there are a lot of questions and, and hypotheses in the field about you know, how sort of the, the paths of development of autism are overlapping or not overlapping with the paths of development of language in order to sort of yield this contradiction. So in broad strokes, that's what, what the project is about. It's about trying to better understand language development in autism. The project that was funded by the NIH is comprised of three specific studies. And the particular question that we're interested in looking at in these studies is the role of overhearing in language development. When I say overhearing, I really mean sort of eavesdropping. And that's sort of an interesting question to think about in language development, and particularly when we think about the earliest stages of language development. So when we think about how an infant or a young child learns language, we often think about the sort of prototypical situation where a parent and the child are in a dyadic, right? Meaning a one-on-one -on -one interaction and they're playing with toys, they're talking about those toys or the caregiver is talking about those toys and the caregiver is talking directly to the child, right? And that is a fantastic way to learn language. But that is not the only situation in which children learn language. So we know just partly from common sense, but also from cross-cultural research and also from lab-based research that infants and young children are able to learn language in other sorts of situations, including when the language is not being directed to them, but is being directed by their father to their sibling or being directed from their mother to their father or from, you know, one father to another father. So that ambient language in the environment can also be used by infants, toddlers, children, all of us, right, to learn new words. So that has been known for, for a long time in the language development literature. My colleague and I latched onto this question of the role of overhearing in language development as it pertains to autism because there are good reasons to wonder whether that dyadic interaction, right, a one-on-one -on -one interaction between a caregiver and a child might be sort of more cognitively burdensome for individuals with autism than for a typically developing individual. Meaning, um, you know, there are first-person accounts from autistic individuals where they say, you know, maintaining that back and forth, being present in a one-on-one -on -one reciprocal interaction takes a lot of effort. It's very effortful. It takes a lot of work to maintain that back and forth. Now, if that's true for young children with autism, right, it might mean that that one-on-one -on -one interaction 
is very effortful. It's very hard. And that might mean that they don't have a lot of mental resources left to be learning language, right? Maybe it's actually easier to not have to maintain a one-on-one -on -one interaction, but to be able to listen in on somebody else's interaction, to be able to just eavesdrop and sort of mine that ambient language for useful linguistic information. So that's sort of how we tied this body of literature on overhearing and eavesdropping and language development into this body of literature on language learning in autism. So the project that was funded by the NIH is comprised of three different studies where we're sort of probing this question of can young children with ASD, with autism spectrum disorder, use overhearing or use eavesdropping as a mechanism to learn language. Now, we have good reason to believe that they can. We have done a small study already with young children with autism. And in that small study, we found that the children with ASD were just as effective in learning new words in overheard situations as they are in situations where they're being directly addressed. So we do have some evidence to suggest that this looks like a good word learning strategy for kids with autism. And so the grant will fund some expansion of that work, you know, where we enroll um, more children and a more diverse group of children, and where we also expand the work not just to look at nouns, right, which is what we looked at in the existing study, but to look at other kinds of words, right, to look at verbs, to see what role this might play in pronoun development as well. And the, the question of pronoun development is, is really interesting. So, so pronouns can be first person pronouns, right? Like I and me. It can be second person pronouns, you. It can be third person pronouns, right? His, her. And pronouns are really interesting to, to think about from a language learning situation because they're deictic, meaning the use of those pronouns shifts depending on who the speaker is. So Mark, when you're talking, you're I, and I'm you. But when I'm talking, I'm I, and you're you, right? So pronouns are really hard. And, and they're particularly hard. You know, if you, can, if you can pretend for a second, like you're a 12-month-old, or a 15-month-old, or an 18-month-old, and you're sitting in everyday interactions with your caregiver, your caregiver is always going to be I, right? Your, your caregiver is always going to be referring to themselves as I and always going to be referring to, to you, the infant, as you. And so as, as the infant, you actually don't get to see in that one-on-one -on -one interaction the fact that pronoun meaning shifts if you're only in a one-on-one -on -one interaction. But imagine now that there is a sibling in the house or imagine that there's another caregiver in the house. And you're able to see that when your father is talking to your brother, your father is I and your brother is you. But when your brother is talking, your brother is I and your father is you. So pronouns arguably are a unit of language that's better learned in overheard situations because you get to see that the meaning shifts. And in fact, there is literature suggesting that second born or third born or fourth born children learn pronouns faster than first born children. 
And the argument is that because a second born child, a younger sibling, right, is able to see how those pronouns are being used by other members of the family. So we're really interested in thinking about pronouns in these sorts of overheard language learning situations, particularly because there is a long-standing body of literature indicating or suggesting that pronouns are particularly hard for individuals with ASD. And one thing that we're wondering is whether we could support individuals with ASD in mastering pronouns, which are really hard, right? If we can capitalize on the value of these third-party, third-person overheard conversations. That's fascinating. Until you pointed this out, I hadn't really contemplated how a new language learner would look upon the world as a world full of people named I and you. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But you need those different kinds of situations in your everyday life where you can see how those words are being used differently depending on the speaker. The way you explain it makes perfect sense. What I'm really curious about now is in terms of research and how you experiment, how do you go about proving that all out? How do you conduct your research? In pre-pandemic times, I would have one answer for you, Mark. And now in pandemic times, I have another answer for you. <laughs> Traditionally, what you do is you bring a family into your lab, right? In 216 Tremont, we have a lovely uh, research suite on the sixth floor. And um, traditionally, we would bring families in there and we'd sit them down in our sort of testing room. And we would do a series of, you know, relatively play-based games where you try to teach a new word for a new object in your two different word learning situations. So the two different word learning situations that I've been talking about are, the first is one where the child is directly addressed. So you're speaking directly to the child. And in the other one, you're speaking to somebody else and the child is overhearing. So what we do is we have a whole slew of unusual objects for which kids are unlikely to have a name. And I'll tell you that makes for some unusual Amazon orders, right? When you're shopping on Amazon or, you know, or at a hardware store and you're trying to find obscure objects that young children are unlikely to have a name for. So, you know, I can tell you some of the things that we use. We use like a lemon press or a melon baller or silicone oven mitt that looks a little bit like a, you know, like a duck's mouth or something. These sorts of strange objects that are in a sense everyday objects but for which children are unlikely to have a name. And you try to teach them a name for it. So you try to teach them that it's a Modi or you try to teach them that it's a Toma. And for one object, you do that in a situation where they're being directly addressed by the researcher. And uh, with another object, you try to teach them that word where the researcher is not talking to the child, but the researcher is talking to another researcher, a confederate basically. And then you sort of test whether they learned that word or not. So you put the objects out on the table and you say, where's the, where's the Toma? Where's the Modi? You see if they can pick the object that, that you labeled. So that's what it would look like in pre-pandemic times. And now, of course, we've had to move it all online. So we have some incredibly dedicated research staff who are trying to probe the limits of Zoom and WebEx and um, all of the different platforms that we have to try to make it look like 
one researcher who is in Boston is in the same room as another researcher who's in New York so that we can try to convince these kids who are watching from their homes in Oklahoma or North Dakota or wherever that they're sort of overhearing a conversation between two adults. I had a question. How can you tell if the participant is actually paying attention at all? That's a really good question. And again, you know, my answer sort of varies depending on if you're talking about pre-pandemic or pandemic times. You know, in pre-pandemic times, you could measure it in terms of whether they're sort of looking attentive, right? Are they sitting at the table and sort of watching the two adults who are there? So you can code where they're looking. We have, we normally video record the sessions and and we can code whether the participant is looking at the researcher or crawling under the table or running around because these are three and four year olds, right? So they're gonna do what three and four year olds do. Now, when we're gonna be running this all virtually, we'll have to think about it in a sort of roughly similar way. You know, we're hoping that what we're gonna be doing online is interesting enough that the kids will be willing to sit in their chair at home and watch the Zoom screen. And similarly, we will be asking parents for permission to record the session via Zoom. And so we can similarly record where they're looking. But all of this, you know, all of these metrics that I'm telling you about are all metrics of visual attention. They're just metrics of whether the kid is looking, which of course is not the same thing as whether the kid is listening. There's no real easy way to measure whether they're listening or not, which is just as important, if not more important, than whether they are looking. You know, I think the only argument we can make is, well, if they get it right, then they must have been listening for at least part of the time. If they get it wrong, hard to know whether that's because they weren't listening in the first place or whether that's because they weren't able to you know, they were listening, but they weren't able to learn the new word. So those, that's a great question mark. And that's one that, that I've grappled with, with my colleagues for several years now. And actually, I was just talking with a, um, with a colleague who's down in Delaware, and she was thinking about ways that we could better measure auditory attention, because I think this question of whether they're listening is a critically important question, and one that you know, I, I don't have a, a great answer to at this point, but one that we're constantly thinking about. When you look at the research, I understand it's applied to three and four-year-olds. Could you or would you apply this to older children? Yeah, absolutely you could. You know, a lot of these questions about language development, we try to measure at sort of the earliest point that we can as it's emerging in sort of real-time development while also balancing the, the realities of trying to get very young children to sit through research paradigms. So much as we would love to enroll two-year-olds, an autism diagnosis often isn't made until later than that. And also, you know, trying to get a two-year-old to sit in front of a Zoom screen to do a research paradigm is, is a tall order. So yes, you could certainly do these studies in older children. And the reason why we pick three and four and five-year-olds is just because we think that that is the earliest point that we could measure it feasibly and, and somewhat reliably in, in the group of kids that we're interested in. Let's assume that your research is as fruitful as we hope it will be. What would the next step be after you've completed your research? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think the general answer is we'd like to figure out how to use this information in a way that will support language learning for children with autism. So what that means is we'd love to be able to take this information and see if we can use it in some sort of an intervention study or a treatment study. 
with the general goal of trying to provide intervention that capitalizes on the kinds of things that children with autism can do well. So if this is a setting that works well for them, if overhearing is a strategy that's effective for them, and perhaps even more effective than a one-on-one -on -one sort of directly addressed situation, can we use that in an intervention setting to make it more effective, to make it easier for that child to learn? And I guess the other thing that I would say is, you know, I think 2020 has really highlighted for the world the capabilities of, of the virtual experience, right? What, what can we move online? And while I am certainly not arguing that we should move autism interventions online in the absence of, of necessity, you know, there are situations like what we're in right now where we have to think creatively about what can we do over a screen, right? What can we do remotely? What can we do for children and individuals who live in places where it's difficult to get services, right? Where they live literally geographically far away from service providers. Are there ways in which we can use these virtual platforms to deliver interventions that are, that are better than the alternative, right? That are, that are better than, than not getting services at all. So, so I think, you know, our goal is really to take what we learn about these different kinds of word learning situations, language learning situations, right? Thinking about the richness of, of observation, thinking about the, the opportunities that are provided for learning in these different kinds of settings and considering how we can capitalize on that to make services better, right, of higher quality, and also to think about creative ways to distribute interventions to a range of people. Dr. Leister, in our remaining time, could you give our audience three takeaways about your research? Sure. You know, I think one really important takeaway is sort of a language takeaway, which is just the idea that children are going to benefit from hearing language, from being in an environment that is language rich. So for parents, for, for caregivers, you know, it's really important for us to remember that we can support language development, whether of a typically developing child or child with autism, by making sure that we're using language in a range of ways. So using lots of different words, using those words in different ways, using those words across different situations and contexts. And you know, that, that language can be provided to children in lots of different ways. And kids have sort of been built to, to make good use of the language that's, that's in the world around them. Um, so I guess my first takeaway is just the value of a language, a language rich environment um, for child development. I think the second takeaway point is that starting from, from my earliest interest in autism, I've tried to really remember that when you're thinking about autism spectrum disorder, it's really valuable to appreciate the importance of focusing on things that people can do well. That it's not just about identifying areas of deficit. It's not just about identifying impairments, but it's identifying the kinds of skills that individuals with autism are using and are using well and to capitalize on those skills, to really consider those strengths as an important component of that individual's profile. 
And then finally, I think it's just a general takeaway about the complexity of development. You know, one of the reasons why I love what I do is because I am forever marveling at the complexity of human development. You know, I think there is sometimes a tendency to be reductionistic about it and to sort of say, well, it's nature or it's nurture. But of course, in reality, it's both. And when we're thinking about that as it applies to people, you know, we can't reduce a person to their diagnosis. We can't reduce a person to one singular feature about them. We are all incredibly complex beings, right, who are characterized by a number of different personal traits, right? We're characterized by the things that we're good at. We're characterized by the things that we're less good at. We're characterized by the ways in which those things interact with each other, and, and we're characterized by the ways in which we interact with the world around us. So I think that's what makes my job so interesting, right, is, is really just to appreciate how incredibly complicated we are and to appreciate, you know, just the, the infinite possibilities of human development. So I think those are, those are my sort of three takeaways and, and some points that I sort of keep near and dear to my heart. In today's episode, we spoke with Dr. Ian Leister, an Associate Professor of Communication Sciences and Disorders here at Emerson College. She has dedicated her career to studying communications and the development of children with a focus on autism spectrum disorder. Her research has been supported by many well-known organizations in the scientific community, and her work has been published in several academic journals. She's the director of the Little Lab for Infant and Toddler Language at Emerson. Dr. Leister received her PhD at the University of Michigan. You've been listening to Campus on the Common. I'm your host, Mark Brody. The executive producer is Dean Raul Rice. Lucas Poiser is our producer and chief engineer. Oliver Glass is our associate producer. Campus on the Common provides an expert view into the field of media and communication through the lens of academic experts and industry professionals from Emerson and beyond. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College's School of Communication. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.